This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 5th of March 2019. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and its surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Jon, and here is my... I wrote all my articles myself, Dave. Hi, Dave. Mm, <laughs> yeah, actually, if I'd written all the articles myself, we might have had a more interesting news episode. <laughs> okay, starting on the high note, I hear. <laughs> The only way is up from here, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we should get come clear about this. We intend originally intended to record this episode tomorrow, but due to circumstances, we have to do it one day earlier. And considering we do our preparation really weeks in advance for a new show, which doesn't really work that way. Yeah, we I mean, had to kind news, of scramble a bit. It's topical, you know. You can't, <sighs> you can't do that weeks and weeks in advance, surely. Uh, well, no, not if you want to be drawing news it has to be recent and today recent meant scraping the barrel i think you, you called it <laughs> yeah i think that's fairly accurate so yeah apologies for this we'll try to make it entertaining uh, we don't have anything to do with religion this time so we should not get excommunicated this time at least <laughs> apart uh. from that uh yeah let's start seriously though um dateworks summit barcelona is around the corner yes indeed. time so uh we had a free ticket raffle going on that uh winner has been contacted and the ticket has been given out so if you received our email with the code congratulations again if you didn't win if you didn't get the email with the winning code that means you didn't win and we invite you to try again next time Indeed. Congratulations to our winner. Yep. Again, thanks to GDPR. We can't talk about much there, but uh, with a bit of luck, we'll meet the winner at the Dataworks Summit. And maybe we'll have him on the show, or him or her on the show, and we'll see what happens. Indeed. Indeed. Anything else? I don't think so. Let's get on to our exciting, top fuel, top quality news. Actually, the first (laughs) bit is pretty good. Uh, well, the first thing is, it's not even a news article, to be honest, it's a blog post, but uh, I kind of hey, want to put news, this, I had news. put this on this, yeah, it's always news, but it's a bit ancient as well, I mean, by the time you hear this, but I put this on the um, show notes here be a, couple, a couple of weeks ago when we did the interview with the track chairs, because as people who are faithful to our podcast will remember last episode, we had two track chairs of the Dataworks Summit on to talk about what they're doing there, and one of them was Elosha from Data Artisans. And what we didn't talk about at that time was the fact that uh, Data Artisans was in fact uh, being, I don't know, merged with, bought over, taken over. Yep, they know, were acquired by Alibaba. Acquired by Alibaba. And we couldn't mm-hmm. talk about that because at that time, uh, Alosha didn't have clearance to talk about it, so we didn't. Yep. But uh, we did kind of know about this. And uh, in the meantime, there has been a blog post on the Data Artisans uh, website about their name change because they're actually no longer called Data Artisans. So any link on Google or Bing or whatever search engine you use that linked to Data Artisans actually now links to a new site. And it's called... Well, so either possibly Viverica or Viverica, <laughs> or um, or as as Jon was calling it earlier. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't okay. go there. Well, you know, I'm sure the uh, the the more learned out there can possibly guess. Anyway, congratulations uh, <laughs> to to all at a hopefully successful rebranding and uh, moving forward under the new the new name of the new organisation. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting that they had a name change. There's, uh, even though the blog post is called Introducing Our New Name, they don't really tell us why they have a new name. But there's probably a reason for that. Now, for people who don't know this, uh, Data Artisans is, of course, the big organization behind Apache Flink. Mm-hmm. Most of the, uh, how do you call that again, uh, contributors and committers uh, in the Flink are at least vetted by uh, Data Artisans people. And uh, actually, when I put this in the blog posts um, a little while ago, I forget if it's uh, somewhere in January, I think, end of January, mm. uh, there was a, a, a message coming out from Alibaba where their fork of Apache Flink, which they called Blink, which is strange because Alibaba Flink should be Ink or Alink, but it's a B Link, doesn't matter. Uh, actually, they're going to put a lot of their Blink improvements back into the Apache Flink open source uh, repositories. Now, this in hindsight, looking now at the acquiring of data artisans, makes more sense, of course. Yep, indeed. Now, I do wonder if this is going to what this is going to mean for Flink, because I mean Alibaba. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're mostly uh, active in the Asian part of the world, right? Yes, I mean when we. When we were talking, um, or when I was talking to some of the people at Data Arsons a, a little while back, um, they do, I mean, here in Europe, we know sort of about Flink primarily from a, a Central European perspective. They have a um, quite a, a strong customer presence there, but um, they are also absolutely huge in, you know, areas like um um, Alibaba and, and other organizations of a similar vein. You know, they seem to do very well there. And you know, yeah. obviously, Alibaba extended them, uh, extended what they were doing there with the, the, their Blink fork, which they're now, as you say, rolling the code back in. Um, so I think that it's a chance for us to see, once those improvements and changes are rolled back into the core Flink, you know, whether that... Um, allows the sort of the legacy legacy Flink customers, I guess, to, to sort of actually see a whole brand new set of functionality, but also maybe it will bring a whole new set of organizations on board that were waiting for some of those features to land before they uh, before they committed to it. I think it's, it's interesting when you see a step change in a project like this, um, mm exactly what that might mean for adoption it could it could mean very good things for adoption uh yes because uh, obviously flink and uh, spark have been kind of paralleling each other and as you say in, in the western europe side spark pretty much won the that battle of uh, mm. marketing battle uh functional functional wise i can't really comment because because spark is everywhere and flink is hard to find i've got more experience with spark than with flink and that's yeah. a self-fulfilling prophecy of course yeah but yeah. if a uh, big asian push comes with uh, a lot of usage on that then that might 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 change the balance yeah although yeah. i'm kind of thinking back of the kyligens thing the kylin apache so was it apache i don't remember but the kylin product Mm. Which is also very uh, popular in Asia. Yeah, true. It hasn't really pushed through in Western Europe. I mean, I still, it's been, it's now a year, I guess, since we had people from yeah, Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, can't say I've, uh, except for the one customer which has a big presence in Asia, I can't really say I've seen much of Kyle in, in uh, yeah, easy adoption, early, not even early adopters, to be honest. 
Mm, yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I, it will it will be interesting to see how how this changes the picture if it changes the picture. I mean, maybe maybe it won't make as much of a yeah, uh, a change to the the sort of adoption and ecosystem as I as I think. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful. It's good. It's good to have a bit of competition. It's good to have a bit of change. And uh, I think a, a big, as you say, a big uh, push of, of Asian adoption and new functionality landing in the project that can only be good for everybody, right? Uh, yeah, because I think the one thing that Flink is suffering from at the moment uh, for adoption is the ecosystem around it. I mean, mm. Spark, everything and everything connects up to Spark because, well, it's the big guy out there, so we have to play with them. Yeah, And I'm not saying Spark is good or bad in this uh, aspect. It's just uh, marketing and, yeah, that's how it works. Yep. Uh, if Flink gets more APIs, I mean, the, the the Blink thing is particularly table and SQL APIs, apparently. I haven't really looked at them in detail. But it's definitely something that allows you to connect to a lot more um, existing EDWs or databases or warehouses you may have there. Mm-hmm. So it, it should broaden the the ease of use and adoption, I guess. So uh, it would be good to have a good competition for the Spark project as well. Because as we've often said before, competition is good because it gives you innovation. It makes people yep. want to do better because you have a target to fight against, uh, yep. fight in a good way here. And uh, at the moment, uh, it's kind of hard to see what spark needs to aspire to because there is nothing they can really compare themselves to and uh, having flink more more prominent there yeah just might be good for both yeah i think so i think so anyway as you said good luck to the data artisans slash very 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 guys um make sure we hear a lot about you so we learn how to pronounce the name Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I, I, was, I was a tiny. Maybe there is a uh, a page that I didn't manage to hit across, which uh, says how it how it should be pronounced. But uh, I will. Uh, I'll take a look a little bit later, a bit deeper. But uh, yes, I look forward to reading that page and and hearing more about them. Right on to the uh, next brilliant article by. <laughs> So yes, the challenges to tackle before you start with AI. Um, does this mean that you can't just start with AI? Can I just plug AI in and, and fix everything just straight away? Does that not how it works? Well, if I put my Microsoft hat on, my Azure Microsoft hat on, then I have to say, yes, of course, we have pre-built algorithms that all do it all for you. Okay, and- good, right. <laughs> in that case, we'll, uh, we'll not talk about the rest of this article. <laughs> But actually, I hadn't thought about this when I scanned through the article just uh, before we started recording here. But it's one point he doesn't really—it's a he, I think—and yeah, it's looked uh, hasn't hasn't touched upon. He's going from the premise that you have to do it yourself, and we're doing it flippantly now. But actually, the question does should be posed if you should do it yourself or not. Uh, but maybe go through the article first and come back to that. Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. So this is an article from uh, Ronald Van Loon, um, and I mean, I don't know that we necessarily need to go through the article in depth, but essentially what he's talking about is what we've been saying for, well, since the beginning of time, it feels like, the, the challenges with... <laughs> yeah, I'm not that old. <laughs> well, so, since, okay, uh-huh. since the beginning of the of the podcast, anyway, the, the things that, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about AI or machine learning or even just simple analytics or basic visualization, um, it all starts with the data and getting not just any old data and shoving it in because garbage in, garbage out, so get, getting 
quality data, getting people that know how to deal with that data, so getting the, the best talent and having some sort of trust in in the, the data that you're receiving um, is, is really the, the key to any of these things being sensible, including AI. So it then goes on to talk about uh, a variety of other things like having uh, some sort of AI vision rather than just randomly popping AI into all sorts of strange locations. Try and work out actually where you want to okay. use AI, where that fits into your your organization's um, sort of future development plans and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it also talks about um, build and manage customer journey-centric teams. I, I, this is, I sort of struggle with this article a little bit because there's some stuff in here that makes perfect sense and then there's other stuff that I'm not quite sure why it's there. I mean, I can understand why if you're looking at AI as part of a, uh, you know, a chatbot experience, for example, or something that you can use to assist um, call center staff or you know something like that then it makes perfect sense to be talking about um, customer journey but what if you're using AI for some completely different uh, purpose that might be very little to do with the customer journey so I don't know that seems to be some of this seems to be a little bit random yeah, it does read like an article that was written by somebody that comes from the the data side of the whole advanced analytics world and uh, inevitably gets in touch with AI as well because one leads to the other. Yeah, it does because he also talks about the, the the four V's of big data, which yeah, of course, because your data is feeding your AI algorithm, it's related, but it's not something I would put under the heading of challenges to tackle before you start with AI. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you know, to to his benefit, at least he didn't call uh, call it the new oil. So you know, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, but you did. You <laughs> I just did. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't call it that. I said at least he didn't call it that. It's, it's very tape, different. Man. It's on tape. You can't escape. <laughs> um, and 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 sort of the the final piece, I think. Um, is actually uh, apart from having the data in the first place. The most important part of the whole article, I think, is the very last section, where where he talks about actually having some sort of end-to-end AI lifecycle management, which to me makes perfect sense. This is not a a single step. Great, I have implemented AI. Job done. <laughs> actually, that's that should never be the case. You should always be looking to improve what you're doing, extend it, advance it. You know, whatever whatever it is that you're involved in. So. I think having some sort of um, view on what that life cycle should look like and how you can continue to increment and improve it makes you know, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's actually a good point because a lot of people that are, tr- are struggling with introducing these new uh, technologies in their environments, when they're talking about uh, the, uh, the life cycle of AI, they try to do it in a software lifecycle management mm. style where you have your uh, beta version, then you have your release version, and then you have uh, bug fixes, and they have, they have uh, how do you call that, new features added and stuff like that. Uh, that's not how AI or machine learning lifecycle, well, model lifecycle is basically mm. what you're talking about here, uh, works like. Because your model can 
evolve in different places. It can evolve on the, the data set you use can evolve. It can have more yep. data because you have feedback loops in place where the yep. model yep. couldn't predict or recognize or whatever something. Anomalous data comes back, which you can use to refine your model. You can have uh, your, your, your data set enlarge because you add new data sets, new columns, new rows. Well, no, new rows is more data, so new columns, new new features. Yep. Uh, yep. Use the nomenclature because it's there for uh, and that again will affect how your model works and probably also or probably could also affect what algorithm you use. So there's multiple versions of this uh, lifecycle thing. And the whole change, the difference between software management is that it's not being driven by adding new features to get people to buy the next version of my software release. It's totally about looking if your model is still is performing good enough and it's never as good enough so you should always get make a better model so the moment your model is finished that's the time you start your next version of the model which is better mm-hmm. but also keep in mind that your data even if the data schema doesn't change the data coming in can change because, yeah um, i'm thinking about the flu virus pr- uh, prediction from google yeah. i'm just going to finish this one where they had an algorithm that was able to pr- that kind of was able to predict flu epidemics but because that became known, more people started searching because they wanted to search the article and what was happening with the AI thing, which made the data set used by the AI skewed and yeah. uh, started making bad predictions. Yeah, and also you get you know simple things like customers' preferences change over time. And also. Th- th- those kind of things are you know, not necessarily the sort of thing that you can factor yeah. in from you know a simple set of training data. I mean, people's preferences change you know, seasonally, annually, over periods of time, tastes and that sort of thing changes. You know, all these kind of things are some of the many reasons why none of this is is ever going to be static. That being Not said, even. there's there's always going yeah. to be a point where your model is good enough. You know, it, never nope. perfect, but then there's always going to be a trade off with like how much more time and effort do I put into this, trying to get a fractional improvement in accuracy over actually leaving that now is as good enough for the time being and then focusing on another area of my business that could really do with help from some sort of AI and or ML based augmentation. Yeah, but it should never go on life support because uh, you keep you have to keep on monitoring because of all the things you just talked about. Uh, the point that you get to the it's only really incremental improvements by adding more stuff. Well, that's the point where you move from a single model to an ensemble model, where yep. instead of having one recommendation engine for everything, you make recommendations specific for specific segments of your business. So you start to finding uses that way. Uh, another another thing, your business itself is also going to grow. So your model which you trained for your local market may or probably will not be good enough for other mm. markets because culture changes and things like that. So uh, the only time when an, a model is done, in my opinion, is when you no longer use it. Yeah. So the interest, so interesting question for you then is Uh-oh. what do you see as... <laughs> so a lot of organizations are relatively early in this journey. I, I think that's probably mm-hmm. yep, a fair that's assumption. Fair. Um, and if we're talking about the fact that... Uh, so you've got a variety of different roles here already. You've got you know, the people creating the models or you know using existing models and doing the initial training. You've then got 
people sort of possibly different roles adapting those models to change as it happens while the original people then go on to you know whack the next mole or you know sort of try and solve the next big uh, business problem do you do you think people have probably properly factored in the amount of continual sort of maintenance that that these kind of solutions will actually need in the long term as as more and more um, ml and ai based solutions are deployed in organizations you know if if they need regular you know, tending a bit like a garden for example mm-hmm. Do you think people have really thought about that to any level of depth and really factored that in? Uh, absolutely not. In in my experience, no, because they're looking at it as a piece of software. And mm. a piece of software, you can have, okay, development period, a deployment period, bug fix period, end of life period. You can make a budget for that, plan it out for the next five years, finished, nothing has to change anymore. And that's not how machine learning models or uh, AI models work mm. because they need continuous attention and a lot of that stuff can be automated that that still incurs a cost because even automated means you don't need stupid people looking at it only stupid software and not all calling people stupid i mean people are people (laughs) yeah Um, but you also somebody has to look at the monitoring has to be aware if something goes wrong has to make sure that the that the levels are, are calibrated correctly, that when X goes over Y, that is a, something we need to look at or not. And that's not so, it's very hard to budget something like mm. that because, as you said, people are at the beginning. This is not something that's been done for a long time. So yeah. there is yeah. some, some, yeah, getting, to, getting, a, getting a grip on this whole thing. Yeah. And in my opinion, you will need to actively maintain this thing until you no longer use it there'll mm. never be a thing where you say okay it's finished we've done all the bug fixes we'll, we'll do security fixes from now on and that's it no because at that point uh, if you see how fast a chatbot on twitter can go from uh, totally normal to suicidal uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh racist whatever it was i forget what, the, what the, there were a lot of problems with that experiment yeah. But can you imagine having something on your website? You, you pay an external company to build a bot to put on your website. You put it there, it's done, it's finished, and now we don't have to look at it anymore? The, the, the possible problems there are horrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe coming back to the thing I was talking at the beginning when you mentioned this, the should you do it yourself, uh, that's something that's not mm. being uh, done here in this article. And it's really something a lot of people need to look at, because specifically you're talking about AI. Now, AI, it really depends on who you talk to, how you see the, the relationship between AI, machine learning, and deep learning. Some people see machine learning and deep learning being part of AI. Some see AI being smarter than machine learning, and I'm not sure how you're looking at this. But if your AI thing is a deep learning thing, you really should ask the question if you, ha- if you should do this yourself. For machine learning, I don't think it's that big of an issue because there's a lot of tools out there. It's approachable. The investment in time, money, people, machines, resources is not that great. It's not that big. I think machine learning, everybody should have a go at it just to see if it's something you like or not. No problem there. I'm not talking about the person, about the businesses, the organizations. Just see if, if you think you can do something with machine learning, there's no reason not to look at that. You go to deep learning, it's still a whole different ballgame. The tools are not mature yet. They're really evolving every day. 
the, yeah. the, 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 the algorithm of the, the language of choice today can be totally different tomorrow of yesterday. So there's a lot of flexibility there. And the resource investment uh, on the hardware is l a lot larger because you're typically going to be looking at GPUs, even, even maybe FPGAs and things like that. And also the people, if you think machine learning guys are hard to find, uh, deep learning guys are even harder to find. So it all becomes quite big, uh, a project, a very large project for a relatively small company. If, if you're one of the internet mastodons out there, yeah, go ahead, have at it. You're probably already doing it. But if you're a normal retail manufacturing company, mm. This is a big thing to start chewing on, and you really have to look around and see if somebody else has done it already. Because a lot of the AI things, because they're so big, they are available as more service layer things. Yeah. And yep, you will have to pay a price uh, on the flexibility, and does it really do what I want it to do? But have a look if it's close enough or not, and make sure that if you do invest, that it will actually make a difference for you, that you will have some value added on top of what those other guys have done, if not, you're just doing the same thing in your own color, perhaps. Yep. And yeah, is that a good, 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 a is, good, that, is, that a good is it a good use of budget? Is it good use of time, resources, effort? Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like emotion detection on text, that's done. Unless you're doing it in Swahili, which is a language perhaps nobody has used it for, then yeah, great. But if you're doing normal language not shouldn't say normal but um, much used languages like uh, french english german don't develop your own emotion detection algorithms they're out there just reuse hmm. this that's done same with facial recognition if you're doing the the typical caucasian western european or american uh, facial recognition i don't think you'll build something better than what's out there already now, these are very specific use cases and very generic yep. ones. The and, moment yeah, you go into in the, a in very the more grand specific scheme domain, of things, relatively mature ones as well. Yeah, because they're very uh, generally applicable. Yeah. That's why everybody yeah. can use facial recognition. So everybody's been looking at it. And Most people have faces, therefore, facial recognition makes sense. Uh, exactly. But if you're trying to do something to have an optical recognition for coffee beans, I know you're a particular aficionado of chocolate covered uh, espresso beans, belly buttons, <laughs> for example, there's probably not an algorithm for that. Uh, I would hope not, to be honest. But <laughs> belly, uh, lint, belly button lint recognition—that's one, that's one to, <laughs> to investigate. Okay. But uh, yeah, so the more specific a domain goes into more niche values, then yeah, you will be able to add value. But then do keep in mind that your investment in resources, be it uh, people, um, data, data yep. at large, large data sets acquired, and uh, GPUs and stuff, is going to be important. And make sure that the ends justify the means you're gonna to have to throw at this yep which i don't want to be negative about because i love ai and love what it's doing i love deep learning but uh, on a business uh, level you have to make sure it's it makes sense look at your cost benefits analysis yeah sure look one. at your return on investment and you know look at what you could do internally and make the hard decisions sometimes it just doesn't make sense to throw money at these things sometimes it makes sense to just take off the shelf and and get uh, a faster you know, faster time to market, faster return on investment. Hey, look at the big companies like Google and Amazon. They don't build it all themselves. They buy small companies that have done it already. Well, or they use, uh, I mean, look at the entire rise and rise of open source. That That is the very definition of people not DIYing, but instead people taking solutions that are 
you know, quote unquote, pre-built, depending on your definition of pre-built, and you know, taking those things. I mean, how many how many organisations do you know that uh, have their own Linux distro nowadays? Uh, well, I still compile my Gentoo. So. Yeah, but you're still using Gentoo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. made me think of an article that I read about last week about mm-hmm. an open source model for generating texts. I'm trying to find it now, but uh, there was uh, an, the OpenAI, I think it's called. Oh, you see, you had me thinking about this one earlier, and I also <laughs> saw this. And I, in fact, I pulled it up while you were talking about it. I was debating whether or not to bring it up or not, or whether to leave it for the next news episode. I think this is good enough that we could leave it for the next news episode. Oh, come on. No, <laughs> All right, no, I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> but uh, when you were talking about open source and things, well, it's yeah. not always that easy. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. But uh, you, you make a note of the article, right? Because I do want to cover this one. I have done, yes. <laughs> right, anyway. So, final, final scrapings, although this is a very tasty scraping. Um, we can make some jokes about cooking shows and cookbooks and the BBC, if you like. Or we can just get straight to the article, which is the BBC Visual and Data Journalism Cookbook for R-based graphics. And uh, this is... Coming to a master chef near you soon. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but actually coming to you from a GitHub near, you, <laughs> near your web browser. Um, and I think this is really quite cool. Um, the BBC are... Famous for a particular style of um, of visualization, you can see it all through their articles and their website, on through sort of um, the what few pr- print um, publications that you'll still see, and also um, obviously on the uh, you know, things like news and that sort of thing on the television. Should you still watch such a thing, um, you can probably get bits of it on YouTube as well. Um, they have a particular style and. It's it's actually to the point where they have developed an entire R package and an R cookbook for making, as they call them, publication-ready graphics using their in-house style, using R's ggplot2. Um, and there was a, I was actually directed to this by a uh, an article that I saw um, on the Revolution Analytics site. And the the thing that I thought was interesting about the the sort of the revolution analytics um, link to it is that it talks about the fact that um, you know they they used to sort of almost hand develop each you know chart that was was created for this, but you know now because they're using this you know directly from the data. Um, it you know maintains their style, but also makes sure that as the underlying data changes, no one needs to then go and manually rehash a pretty looking chart. The chart is you know automatically updated as the data changes. So I think it's I think it's really cool. And if you like that particular sort of very I think clean looking style, there's uh, a great set of um, worked examples all through you know different types of charts and and uh, also how to add a variety of different annotations to them and how to do other sort of weird and wacky things with them as well so yeah it's a it's a it's a nice cool little article if you're into your r and your visualization and you want to um, imitate that uh, that bbc clean style maybe this is the article for you
Yeah, and well, you didn't mention it, but it's uh, it's on GitHub. The whole uh, mm-hmm. library with code examples and everything, so uh, you can just uh, download to your heart's content there. So uh, yeah, it looks nice. Uh, and I do wonder though if their driving force behind this was more the let's have the same style, which is very important for something like a BBC, or the let's not make people do the same thing twice. I, I mean, I yeah, know the I end think, result yeah, is yeah, probably yeah. both, but I'm kind of wondering what the driving factor was. I th- I think it, what it probably well, my guess would be mm-hmm. that basically someone started using this and actually figured out that they could you know it, my guess is that it was just a happy accident you know someone was actually probably using r to work this out in the first place and then when they saw the charts that were being produced that you know look all slick and pretty and they were just like well i can probably do that in r already and then lo and behold you know no doubt several hours of of an of hack, hard hacking later, probably come up with something very, very close. And then just like, well, we can in- eliminate an entire step here, a lot of duplication mm-hmm. of work and a lot of hassle. Let's just yeah. do that. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it's, it's there's a just, little mention here as well that they had a, a six-week course in turn. You get people to speed with uh, the whole yeah, thing. So, uh, yeah. yeah, they had a nice movement going on there. Indeed, indeed. And I, there is almost certainly a little element of, hey, look, the BBC, we're doing cool stuff with R2. Doing cool stuff with R. Still True. doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with R2D2. Now that now yeah, makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's doing cool and stuff. And what is called BB Plot, which is a bit mm-hmm. of an unfortunate name, I guess. I mean, what's the BBC plotting, if, uh, if I may ask? <laughs> <laughs> Don't make a Brexit joke. Don't make a Brexit joke. Uh, how can you not? It is a joke. <laughs> Very oh, painful sorry, one. It is but... a joke. Right. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, it is, right? I mean, nobody's serious about this whole thing, are they? God, I hope not. (sighs) And with that, unless there's anything else from you... No, I think we've done enough damage for today. (laughs) I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, in that case, that is about all the time we have today. Hope you enjoyed this bite-sized serving of big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. But until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the @hadoopcast tag and contact us by email podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thirds. I don't know what thirds <laughs> are, but if you've got any of those, you can send those to us. Also, any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And this is looking forward to editing this dramatic episode. Yon. <laughs> and we look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs> Goodbye. See you then.